We're going to see in our study for the next five weeks how God is a relentless pursuer of us, of the prodigal prophet, but to those who are sinners. You're listening to a sermon series titled Jonah, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Uh, timely that there is suddenly rain coming down and there's lightning striking. <laughs> so the book of Jonah chapter one is where we're going to be today. If you're not sure where Jonah is, it's right after the book of Obadiah. Okay, so you're welcome. There's that. Uh, Jonah is a very unique book in our canon of scripture. And the reason it's unique is because it is in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. But unlike the other prophetic books, the book of Jonah itself is less about the words of the prophet who gives the word of prophecy, and it's much more about the deeds, or you could say the misdeeds, of the prophet who's supposed to be representing God. Now, if you're taking notes today, the word or the name Jonah, I'm very interested in name meanings. Uh, the name Jonah in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word for dove. So I want you to jot that down. Jonah means dove. But unlike the dove that was sent out from Noah on the ark, sent by God to reveal in the midst of wrath that God remembers mercy, this dove, this Jonah, decides instead to set his wings to a flight of folly. Jonah was a messenger of God. And sometimes being a messenger is, well, it's not easy. It's, it's very difficult. Uh, how many of you have heard this phrase, don't shoot the messenger? Have you heard that phrase? Don't shoot the messenger. Now, sometimes the messenger messes up the message. Maybe that's been you. You've been given a message. Uh, maybe as a husband, you were given a message to communicate to someone else. Maybe you as a, a parent were given a message. Maybe you as a child were supposed to communicate something to your parents and you messed up the message. Uh, I heard about this, and I, I've shared this before, but I love this story of um, a woman who went shopping uh, at the jewelry store, and she found this necklace she really liked, and so she texted her husband this. Um, she said, I found a necklace I really like. It's on sale for $5,000. So, of course, texted her husband that, and her husband saw that text and was like, whoa, no, 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 no. No way. And so his reply text to her was, no, no, price too high. Well, because he didn't say no with an exclamation point, she read it as, there's no price too high. There's no price too high for my sweetie. And so she bought the necklace. Don't shoot the messenger. So Jonah is not someone who messes up the message. He's not someone who misunderstands the message. He just doesn't want to give the message. In other words, like, for us today in the church, it's not that Jesus' words are hard to understand. It's that they're hard to truly embrace. They're hard to follow, right? And so Jonah's message to Nineveh was only eight words. Moses, in comparison, his message was four words, let my people go. 
This wasn't hard for him to transmit. It was hard because of another reason. And so Jonah was called to go to the great city of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And his, his call was to preach a message of coming judgment and a call of repentance to the people. But Jonah's response, instead of obeying God, was to turn in the opposite direction and to run. Now, many people consider Jonah to be a fable, to be a fairy tale, to be just fiction like the tortoise and the hare. So it's got a great little lesson for us, and that's what church should be. Just come and learn little lessons that are are fictional, okay? Uh, And they'll argue, listen, this is just a myth. This is not a historically accurate story. In fact, many children love to hear in Sunday school about Jonah and the whale. But when we look at Jonah in this section of our Bibles, we realize he's in a section called the Minor Prophets. And there's really only four major prophets, or three if you count um, Daniel as the fourth. But there's Isaiah, there's Jeremiah, there's Ezekiel, and Daniel. There's four of them. And then there's 12 Minor Prophets. Uh, Most of them we can't remember. And Minor Prophets are not minor in importance. They're not minor in their subject matter, but literally in the amount of writing that they give us. And so, uh, just for example, the major prophets take up 178 chapters of our Old Testament. So that is a lot, right? So um, as we study Jonah, what I don't want you to do is approach this from a fictional fable point of view. Don't get distracted by the whale, okay? Biblically, it's actually categorized not as a whale, but as a great fish. So if you want to argue on that point, it's actually not even a whale. And as we study this, we have to look past the kid's story where we think it's a fun little thing. We've got the pictures of the whale. I did a Google search that I'll show you next week of all of the different representations on Google of the whale, of the fish, and why a lot of us have this misconception of this study. But we have to look past the kid's story, and we have to see what's happening in the book of Jonah. Jonah is a picture of a runner. It's a picture of a runner away from God. Now, in Scripture, there's many people who run away from God, but rarely those who are supposed to represent him. And so God, in all of Scripture, but specifically in Jonah, seems to be this relentless pursuer of the one who's running away from him, the one who's rebelling against him, the one who's turning away in disobedience. God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. He'll have mercy on these lawless rebels, even when they blatantly disobey him. And he's actually going to have mercy on Jonah. Uh, So when we look at this book, we think, well, who is the main character of the book of Jonah? Someone might call out and say, well, it's the big fish. No, you'd be wrong. That's mentioned only four times in the book of Jonah. Someone would say, oh, the main character in this is the the great city of Nineveh. Say, no, you're wrong. That's only mentioned nine times. You would say, oh, I got it. Trick question. It's Jonah. Jonah's the character, and he's the main idea of the book of Jonah. No, Jonah's mentioned 18 times. But the main character in the book, or the main theme of the book of Jonah, is God. He is mentioned 38 times through these four chapters. We're going to see in our study for the next five weeks how God is a relentless pursuer of us, of the prodigal prophet, but to those who are sinners, including myself. Now, there are three reasons that we should study Jonah as biblically true, and then we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, all right? So if you're taking note, three reasons why we are going to study Jonah as biblically true and not as a fictional fable fairy tale. Number one, we're going to study this as biblically true 
because it is biblically true, and all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Uh, I didn't make that up. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. That's right out of Scripture itself. Bearing witness, as that was written, of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament and the New, all Scripture is given by God and is profitable. So number two, we should study Jonah as biblically true because Jesus affirmed it as true. Jesus didn't say, remember that fairy tale? Remember that fable? No, he affirmed the story of Jonah and rooted his own resurrection in the historical truth of the book of Jonah. So if Jonah's a fable fairy tale, then you have to follow suit and say that the resurrection's a fairy tale, and we obviously do not. Uh, Matthew 12, 38, you can see it on the screen, and you can note it for later. In verse 40, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, number three, we should study Jonah as biblically true because Jonah is a picture of the gospel. If you don't know the gospel today, this is a glorious picture of the gospel. We see that Jonah's in the belly of the fish. Three days later, he came out. In like manner, Jesus was in the grave. And on the third day, he rose again. And so we're going to see gospel implications as we read and study this together. Now, for our outline together today, we are going to look at the first three verses of chapter 1. All right, so if you are there now, Jonah chapter 1, we're going to look at three things in this text, in these verses. We're going to look at, at Jonah, we're going to look at Nineveh, and we're going to look at a place called Tarshish or Tarshish. Either way, I'm probably butchering it, but we're going to look at those three aspects of this section today. So look at verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah, okay, so he, this is obviously not obedience, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. All right, so let's look at this. First, we're going to look at Jonah. If you're taking note, Jonah was a prophet during a transitional time in Israel's history. He was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam. And we have his kind of reign um, on the screen. From 793 to 753, about a 40-year reign, um, and he was a very corrupted king. And so like the United States in the 1800s, at this time Israel had been split into north and south. And so the northern kingdoms were known as Israel, the, so the south was known as Judah. Um, and so this king, Jeroboam, uh, was being denounced by Amos. Amos was Jonah's contemporary. And Amos saw the corruption in the king, and he came and he preached uh, a prophetic message against Jeroboam. But Jonah, the other contemporary prophet, didn't seem to be preaching against the king. He actually was speaking blessings to the corrupt king. And we read about this in 2 Kings chapter 14. So note with me on the screen, it says that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. 
For there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So they're being invaded, they're being attacked. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So what happens exactly? What's happening here? We can kind of color in the lines a little bit here. We understand that God saw the affliction of Israel, and so uh, it was very bitter, and there was no one to help Israel, and so God raised up Jeroboam. But it says that in verse 25 that um, he was called by Jonah to restore the border. And so what possibly happened is that Jonah was prompted to speak blessing to the king and to say, hey, we need to expand our boundaries. We need to do more for Israel. We need to have a greater kingdom. This is the greatest kingdom on the planet, and we need to expand our boundaries. And so in Jonah's nationalistic zeal to build Israel back up with power and influence, he's willing to overlook sin even in the king's life even though Amos is prophesying against Jeroboam. Jonah is basically willing to help the wicked king if it benefits the nation of Israel. But when God calls Jonah to go speak against a sworn enemy to Israel, Jonah backpedals. Why? Why would he do that? Well, because of the wickedness of Assyria. So let's look at our second idea, which is Nineveh. Uh, I want you to look at verse 1 where it says, or verse 2 actually, Arise, go to Nineveh, and what does your Bible say after that? That what city? What is, just yell it out for me. Great. A great city. The truth is, when we study the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the capital, we find, wow, the city, the culture that comprised that city, they're not that great. We're not talking about great as in a wonderful place. We're saying great as in a large place, a large place of influence. But Nineveh itself was, was wretched. It was... It was sinful. It's no wonder that God was bringing judgment. It's a wonder that he would ever extend any grace to them. You might say, that sounds a little harsh. Well, let me give you a glimpse of what it was like to be in Nineveh. Uh, Nahum chapter 3, and this is a little graphic, parents, so just to warn you. Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says about Nineveh, it says, the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute alluring, the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Can you imagine trying to describe a city in Florida to someone like that? Like, hey, have you heard of Orlando? Orlando is full of lies. No, we wouldn't describe any of our cities to that extent of wretchedness. Someone's like, well, have you been in Mayaka? No, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Nineveh here is a place of absolute corruption and violence. Did you notice how much there is a picture of death and blood and bodies? Now, Nineveh is across from the modern-day um, city of Mosul, Iraq. So it's right across the river. And it had at, its, at Zenith, it had a population of about 600,000 people. Just to compare that to us, Tampa has in its city center about 400,000. So it's a much bigger city than even uh, the city of Tampa. Uh, the walls around Nineveh, I think we have a picture of some of the uh, reclamation of the original city and some of the rebuilt ruins. Um, the walls are about 100 feet high and 8 miles long around uh, the city, the circumference. Four times in the book of Jonah, God uses this phrase, the great city. And it would take apparently three days to walk through from one end to the full end of the other on foot. 
According to one person, the ground of Nineveh itself, the ground, the dirt, the soil, was stained red from all of the blood of the savage Assyrians. What they did, just to camp out this real briefly, because I know we have children, but they, they would kill you by ripping your skin off as a victim, and they would leave you out with no skin on your body to die in the sun. They even would build pillars of the heads of people they had killed. Okay, so Assyrians were wicked. They had destroyed the northern kingdom, and Nineveh was now their capital city. Uh, God tells Jonah to go to that place and begin to preach to them. Now, what would that be like for, for Jonah? That would be like God telling a Jew during World War II to march into Berlin and begin to share the gospel with the Nazis. One person says this on the screen, as for Jonah, nothing could be more impossible than being sent to Nineveh. Jonah is a Hebrew prophet, an Israelite. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, a powerful neighboring nation with a long history of brutality, war, and conquest. In fact, in 722 BC, Assyria crushed the northern kingdom of Israel, sending its people into exile and wiping it off the map forever. The Assyrians are the enemy. They are the very ones threatening God's people. Nineveh is a dark, wicked place, yet God tells Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Can you imagine after 9-11 being told, Hey, go into Al-Qaeda, and I want you to preach uh, to those terrorists. So what is Jonah's response? You kind of can't blame him. Look at verse 3. It says, But Jonah, knowing God had called him, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare. He went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want to spend some time on this and develop this idea a little bit, this idea of Tarshish, okay? Most likely... Tarshish is, is considered to be modern-day what we would call Spain. So geologists have put it at a literal 180 degrees opposite to Nineveh. I think we have a map here. So notice with me on the screen the, the sheer opposite nature of the map. And so um, this is really what makes the book of Jonah so unique in our canon. Church, when we read this book, everything is completely backwards, so I don't want you to miss this. The prophet of God, who's called by God to represent God, is now running from the one he's supposed to represent. And yet what we'll see next week is the unbelieving crew at sea, the pagan unbelieving crew, they're the ones who are worshiping God. When he finally gets to Nineveh, little spoiler alert, when he gets to Nineveh, the wicked Assyrians are going to immediately repent. And instead of rejoicing in that, we see Jonah lamenting at that. It's totally backwards. So we see the anger of God in chapter 4 satisfied, even as the anger of Jonah is amplified. So it's a book of absolute contradiction and things that are completely backwards. Now, too often, we read a story in the Scripture, and I, I've harped on this a lot, and what happens is we read the, the story and we put ourselves, we infuse ourselves into the story as the hero instead of seeing Jesus as the hero, right? And so we, we've been guilty of that. And uh, you guys remember the David series that we did? We talked through um, that we're not David, that Jesus is a true and better. He's the son of David. Um, so we, we've um, unpacked that already. But here's the thing. Here's the thing I don't want you to miss. Jonah is a book that as we read it, it's actually designed 
to be a mirror as we read it. So we read it and we think, wow, what a walking contradiction. Jonah's a hypocrite. I mean, how could this guy deserve to receive the grace and favor of God? And then we hear a voice that sounds a lot like Paul Washer saying, why are you laughing? I'm talking about you. I'm speaking about you. We read this and go, man, Jonah, he's got his whole act wrong. This guy is running from God. He's turning from God. He's, he's upset when God's pleased, and he's pleased when God's upset, and, and he's trying to go the, what, what, a, what a bonehead. And then we realize, wait, hold on. As we see the face of Jonah, we realize it's reflecting our own face. And we need to think this through, church. Is, has there ever been a time that God has called you to obedience? And you hesitated, you resisted it, you complained about it, you rebelled against it, you ran from God. Now, I'm not limiting this to pastoral ministry. I'm not saying God's call for your life as a pastor and you were a Jonah. I'm saying for all of us, not just for those who are called into ministry, for all of us. Have we ever been called by God to obey him, to do what he's commanded us to do in his word? And yet we ran from that. We rebelled against it. Yes, we are Jonah. And so when God speaks to Jonah here in verse 3, Jonah was about uh, 500 miles from Nineveh and about 2,000 miles from Tarshish. So it's not like in Jonah's day there's this three-hour delta flight that he could just book. Like, you know, I'm just going to get out of here and take, take a break for the week. Um, it would have taken him a lot of time. Jonah's escape would have taken him to Tarshish months and months and months. Now, he may have done this, again, not reading too much, and this is eisegesis, which is when you make assumptions outside of the text. We don't want to do that too much. But Jonah may have said, hey, I just need some time. I'm going to hear from the Lord. I'm going to kind of get away. And he certainly didn't let everyone know, like, yeah, I don't want to do what God's calling me to do. I'm going the opposite direction. And, and so he may have even tried to make this look like a kind of moral, cleaned-up thing that he was doing. But Tarshish was the farthest place possibly on the the map at that time that he could have run. Notice his rebellion. First, he rises to flee. So he gets up from where he is. And then he has a plan. He doesn't just leave. He, he has a plan. He goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship. So he's seeking out the ship. He goes and pays the fare. He's taking his own resources to pay the fare. And then he gets on board. This was methodical. This was intentional. This was deliberate. Jonah is doing everything that he could do to run from God. A, a trip to Tarshish would be incredibly expensive. It would have been incredibly dangerous, as we'll see next week. And listen, it's always more costly to disobey the Lord than to obey. Many people have a Tarshish. They have a place where they go to escape obeying the Lord. Some of them, it's internally. They'll just go inward. And they'll meditate on themselves and they have their happy me place or their me time and they just get away. I just need to, I just need to check out and have some, some time to myself. And that's their Tarshish. Other people say, I just need to be around people. I just need to be around, I need to be around my friends. Let's get out and be extroverted and let's go out and be with people. Some people, it's work. I'm just going to clock in. That's where I find fulfillment. I don't need to hear the voice of God in his word. I just need to plug away. Others will go online and they'll fall into pornography. Others will make busyness their Tarshish. Some will go shopping. Some will just find pleasure in the things around them, sports, politics, food. Tarshish represents either a distraction or a means of satisfaction that takes our minds off of what God is calling us to do and to be. 
one person said, Tarshish is a lie. It's a lie. So what is your Tarshish? God has called each and every believer to obey the Lord, but also to serve the Lord. And I love what Spurgeon says about this on the screen. Spurgeon said, now, why did he desire to get away from his work? Whatever reason he had, it must have been a bad one. For no servant of God ought on any account whatever to think of quitting the service of his Lord. We should not wish to avoid the doing of the Lord's will. When we know what our duty is, we ought to follow it with unswerving determination. We must not wish to leave our post, no, not even to go to heaven. We ought not to be sighing to be gone. Whatever reason anyone thinks he has for avoiding the Lord's work, the reason is as vicious as the thing he is aiming at. For children of God have no right to leave the service of their heavenly Father, and when they do so, it is at their own peril. Wow. You and I are called to obey, we're called to serve, and we can't leave our post. Now, notice in verse 3 what Jonah was seeking to run away from, and I think it's very telling what it says. Verse 3, maybe you caught this when we first read through it. It says that he went to go with them to Tarshish. Notice that the last phrase in verse 3, away from the presence of the Lord. A prophet who represents God trying to flee from an omnipresent God. Now, obviously, that's not possible because there's nowhere in creation where God's presence can't reach, right? God is omnipresent. So Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, the psalmist David asks, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. We may not, uh, you know, experience uh, his presence, but he is still omnipresent. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah should have known this verse, and, and certainly he must have. You and I, like Jonah, cannot run from God's presence. Uh, but some of us try. We, we try. We begin to drift and then we begin to intentionally turn away from what we know is truth we turn away from the truth to lies and when we do that we're not just running from our parents upbringing or good values or moral things what we're actually turning from when we reject God and we reject his truth is we're running from his grace we're running from his goodness we're running from his peace from his provision from his protection from his joy and from his strength and there will come a day when those who are running will stop running. It'll either when they come to an end of their life or an end of themselves. Like the prodigal, there's this moment where you come to your senses as the father begins to draw you back. And you go, what am I doing? I've been running and all along I had the father's favor. So maybe I can just go back and be a hired hand, a servant. But I just, I can't believe I've run from him to go to the pigsty. Uh, many of us run from the face of God. And ultimately, I want to challenge us to stop running today. Now, I want to apply this, um, this whole book, and that's a challenge, but I want to apply the book of Jonah in three ways. So if you're taking note, um, we usually save our application for the end of the sermon, and we're going to do that now. So I want you to jot down three areas of application, all right? So number one, when we look at the book of Jonah, we can apply this to us as Americans or in any context, number one, we must elevate the gospel above nationalism. Now, someone might say, what do you mean by nationalism? Like, I'm a patriot, and I would say, great, we're not talking about patriotism. Let me, let me give you the distinction here on the screen. 
Um, patriotism says this, says, I love my country and I'm thankful to be a citizen of it. Um, this week, I was a part of a pastor's conference um, online. It's kind of not the, you know, not the real thing of being in, in uh, a group of people, but we were online. And one of my friends from Canada um, was saying, like, I'm so thankful to be a part of one of the greatest countries on the earth. And I was like, oh, you're an American? <laughs> and he said, no, I'm a Canadian. And I was like, oh, well, keep, keep, uh, keep that viewpoint to yourself, brother. Um, so it was, it was pretty funny. And then we had this Canadian-American you know, a little back and forth. But patriotism says, I love my country. There's nothing wrong with being Canadian and loving your country. Um, and he's thankful to be a citizen of it. Okay, that's patriotism. Nationalism is when we say, I love my nation because we are better than other nations. And I pointed that out, and my friend in Canada said, oops, I guess I have some nationalistic uh, idols in my heart. Okay, now, stay with me, because I'm speaking to the American Western Church today. So before you grab tomatoes and start throwing them at me, uh, I want to make sure and just offend everyone at this point. So I think it's wonderful to be patriotic. I think it's wonderful. We have an American flag. There's one here in the building. We're meeting at a school called Freedom. There's probably 25 American flags around this property. In fact, I'll give you bonus points if you can find out and count how many there are on the property by next Sunday. I think it's a wonderful thing to be patriotic. Uh, and to seek, listen, to seek the welfare and the blessing of the city and the state and the nation in which we reside. Yes and amen. That's patriotism. Nationalism is when we begin to elevate ourselves morally above other people, above other people groups. Uh, we believe I'm better than you. This, of course, I want you to picture in your head uh, Nazi Germany. This nationalistic pride. We are better than other races. We are better than other cultures. We're better than other people. In his nationalism, Jonah didn't think Assyria should receive the grace of God. You can go ahead and read chapter 4 uh, this week. I know it's kind of the end of the book, but read ahead and see what Jonah's argument really was. His, his frustration was that I knew God. I knew that you were going to call me to preach to them and that they may receive your mercy, that you could actually have forgiveness. And I didn't want that to happen. Jonah was discriminating them based on their nationality. Tim Keller says this. He says, his fear of personal failure, his pride in his religion, his fierce love of his country, there's nothing wrong with love of country, but all of those things had coalesced into a deadly idolatrous compound that spiritually blinded him to the grace of God. As a result, he did not want to extend that grace to an entire city that needed it. Now, could we, could I, could you have the same attitude that Jonah had? We should love any country we're a citizen of, but we can't forget, church, that we are dual citizens. We are a citizen of whatever kingdom we're born into and reside in, but we're primarily a citizen of heaven. Amen? We have to remember that we are first a part of the kingdom of heaven. You and I are citizens of heaven, so we're to fix our minds on things above. Uh, I had some friends who were church planters in Europe for a few decades, and when they came back to the U.S., they were um, planting churches and becoming pastors in the U.S., and they said, I'm shocked at how political the church is and how nationalism has filled the hearts and minds of many Christians. And I think it's a dangerous place for us uh, to elevate nationalism above the gospel. No, the gospel needs to be elevated above nationalism. 
Some have suggested America is the last and greatest hope for the world. And I would say, isn't the gospel? The gospel should be the last and greatest hope for the world. So we must elevate the gospel above nationalism. Number two, uh, we must purpose in our hearts to be witnesses to Ninevites and Samaritans. So notice with me, the title of the sermon today is right out of verse two, Arise and Go. That was God's message to Jonah. Arise and go. And God has called you and I to the same commission. And uh, we've always said this, you can be one of three things when we talk about the Great Commission. You can be a goer, you can be a sender, or you can be disobedient. There's really only one of those three things. We're all called to go, whether it's across the world or across the, the lawn, across the cubicle, we're to go. Uh, when we send people, that means we're, we're taking a group of people who are uniquely gifted or qualified or equipped. They've taken the time to learn culture, to learn language, and we're sending them. We want to send them and allow them to go into the least or unreached parts of the world. So we want to send them. And if we're not doing that, one of those two, then we're disobedient. Uh, some of us have been called to go across the globe, across borders, across language and cultural barriers, but all of us are called to take the word of God to the nations. And sometimes that can be difficult for us because of whom the gospel is needing to be shared with. It can be challenging for us because uh, we have Ninevites and Samaritans in the world. The Life Application Bible in Jonah says this. I thought this was kind of catchy for um, this initial overview sermon. Here's what it says. It says, Today, sin runs rampant in society. Daily headlines in overflowing prisons bear dramatic witness to the fact. With child abuse, pornography, serial killings, terrorism, anarchy, and ruthless dictatorships, the world seems to be filled to overflowing with violence, hatred, and corruption. Reading, hearing, and perhaps even experiencing these tragedies, we begin to understand the necessity of God's judgment. We may even find ourselves wishing for vengeance by any means upon the violent perpetrators. Surely they are beyond redemption. But suppose that in the midst of such thoughts, God told you to take the gospel to the worst of the offenders. How would you respond? See, Jonah didn't want to take this message of repentance to the Ninevites because he knew God may give the Assyrians grace if they did repent. And just to give you the end of the story, they do repent. They do repent at the end of chapter 3. Many times you and I are willing to go reach someone that we feel is reachable. Oh, I wish I could reach that one person. And we feel like, you know, they're worthy of me spending my gospel time on. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to invest in them. And let's go reach them. But then some of us have a category of people uh, and we, or a person in mind. We'd say, well, no, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. I'm not going to share the gospel with that guy, with those groups of people, with that particular people group. Because you know what? Uh, they're just this. They're identified as this. But when we read the scriptures in Acts 1a, Jesus says this on the screen. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and that did happen, uh, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Did you catch those concentric circles? You're going to begin by being a witness in Jerusalem, the city you live in, and then Judea, which is the surrounding countryside, and to the ends of the earth. See, I left one out as I just gave you that set of circles. He said, and to Samaria. 
And so the Jews would hear that and go, yeah, Jerusalem, that's the blessed city. It's the city of God, right? This is, the, this is the pinnacle place of God's favor and presence, Jerusalem. Uh, Judea, yeah, the region. Let's reach the Judean countryside. Let's go for it. The ends of the earth, yeah, we're, we're willing to go. Let's take the good news of God's mercy to the ends of the earth. But then they heard Samaria. And wait, wait, hold on, time out. <laughs> what do you mean Samaria? So you see, the Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds. They considered them to be racially segregated from the Jew. They were religiously against the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were against them. Remember when Jesus approaches a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she wants to argue a religious argument. She wants to say, well, you Jews say we worship in Jerusalem. We think we can worship God anywhere. And they begin this little dialogue. There's a lot of cultural, racial, religious discrimination happening between the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, even in Samaria. Now, we may all have that person or that people group that we would prefer not to reach. It may be a form of racism, prejudice, maybe selfishness, bigotry. But I would just say, who are your Samaritans? Who are your Ninevites? The gospel is for all peoples. And so if God's grace can be extended to a repentant Ninevite, then his grace can be extended to the Samaritan. If his grace can be extended to a Samaritan woman who's at a well living with the fifth or sixth man that she's not married to now at this point, she can experience the grace of God, then a person in the 21st century in Florida can experience the grace of God. You and I are not beyond his reach his grace can reach anyone. And so we need to purpose in our hearts to be faithful witnesses to those that we perceive go beyond the reach of God's grace. And rather than praying for God's wrath to, to happen, oh God, I pray for your wrath to fall upon your enemies. Yes, that's going to happen. But may our hearts also yearn for justice and yearn for repentance and faith and the mercies of God to extend to people we think would never receive the gospel. There's no one who has ever beyond the reach of the gospel. So thirdly, thirdly, we must, number three, just in case no one, there's one person left unoffended, here we go, number three, we must see our own sinfulness and rebellion in light of God's wrath. You see, like Jonah, we don't like to see God forgiving our enemies. But have we considered the fact that God forgives his enemies? Like Jonah's so wrapped up in the fact that these are my enemies, these are Israel's enemies, have we even considered that God himself has enemies, and that includes unrepentant sinners? Greg Laurie says this. He says, I find it interesting that it took God longer to prepare his servant to obey his call than it did for the entire godless city of Nineveh to repent. You see, church, let's not get too zoomed into ourselves as merely Jonah in this story, okay? I'm not just Jonah who needs to be a good missionary and go where God sends me. I'm actually, in this story, a lot more like the Ninevites. I am a violent, rebellious people who disregards the holiness of God, and I'm certain to incur his wrath. And yet, God's plan all along for this rebellious people is one man, sent to preach to them, one who descended into the belly of the earth for three days, and yet rose again to come represent God to me. 
I am so grateful that Jesus came to reach those who are far from him, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus came to obey the Father, not to run from the Father. Jesus was a faithful missionary. Jesus, unlike Jonah, was a faithful servant. Jesus was not a prodigal prophet. Jesus was perfect. And like Jonah, he was baptized into death. But on the third day, he rose again victoriously. Now, before we close, there may be some of you, like Jonah, who are running. You're running away from God. And I want to give you an opportunity to stop running. I'm going to invite our worship team up, and we're going to close in song. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning to stop the, the running. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, and this quote gripped me this week. He says, when you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. But when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you're going, and he pays the fare. See, Jonah in his disobedience and his rebellion, running away from God, didn't realize that he was called to represent the mercies of God to an already rebellious people. You and I, as Christ's ambassadors, can sometimes, even as Christ followers, begin to run from Christ. And so I want to encourage you this morning that God loves you, that his word encourages you this morning to rest, to stop running. Today, through Christ, you can receive the mercies of the Father. You can receive forgiveness. You can receive grace. You may need to come to an end of yourself. And I pray that you don't. I pray that as we look at next week's study, what ends up happening to Jonah, he asked the people to throw him overboard, not, not so that they could have mercy because he wanted to ultimately run so far that he would have his life taken from him. The ultimate act of selfishness, just take my life and then I can end this run from God. Some of you are running so hard away from the Lord that you can't even recognize that the scripture says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. This morning, would you stop running? And so I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want you to respond today. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I just want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, if you're running from the grace of God, would you yield your heart to Jesus today? Would you confess that you've been rebellious? Would you repent? That means to turn from your sin, to turn toward Christ. I want to pray for you today to respond in that way. And so would you stand with me this morning? I'll close this in prayer. And as I pray, that might be you. Uh, I want to encourage you to yield your heart to Christ. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you that you are a loving, gracious God. We just sang about your love. We thank you that you have love even for the rebellious sinner, that Romans 5, 8 says, even while we were yet sinners, God demonstrates his love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your relentless pursuit of sinners like me. And Lord, if there's someone running today, would you restore them? Not through their good works, but through their death today. They would die. They would repent. They would vanquish the old man, render it dead. And they would be risen anew, that they would follow you. So Father, I pray for those unbelieving to come to repentance and faith. I pray for the church, the believing, the runners, to come to repentance and faith. Do that work in me and in us, we pray. 
for your glory, for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.